0: You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Really excited for today's episode. There is no guest. Uh, So today is going to be a little bit different. Chick Hernandez, who has been in the sports media scene in Washington, D.C. for quite a long time and has been on TV and radio and, and just an amazing guy. He's also an incredible golfer. So I reached out to Chick and said, "Hey, Chick, would you be willing to interview me on my podcast where we can talk about my new book, Shift Your Mind?, which just got released today. So Chick and I literally just recorded this conversation and I wanted to put it out to all of you as soon as we finished recording. So it's pretty raw. It's pretty uh, unedited. Uh, hopefully you will forgive us for that. And we just wanted to get it out as soon as possible. So the book came out today. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, really anywhere where you get your books. Um, also, a little bit of an announcement. We are going to produce an audiobook that should come out sometime in November. So that's exciting. If you're a Kindle reader, you can buy it over at Amazon as well. So this is a big day. Uh, and to be honest, the intentional performance podcast has been a labor of love for me and I've been doing it in unison with the book. So I started the podcast a little over four and a half, almost five years ago, and I started writing the book four years ago. And a lot of the information that I gleaned and learned from the podcast is in the book. So if you've enjoyed these conversations, I think, I hope I'm pretty positive you're going to enjoy the book. I poured my heart and soul into it. So if you enjoy the book, one thing that's that's really big for books, uh, when you're done reading or if you're midway through and you're just in love with it, uh, go over to Amazon and write us a review. Uh, it really does make a big difference. If you enjoy this podcast, reviews are big on iTunes as well. And if you have a friend who might be interested in the book, Shift Your Mind, send them this podcast episode. So we're trying to provide as much information about the book as possible. And for me, a big part of writing this book was the opportunity to share what I've learned, what I've gleaned, and what I do with a lot of my clients. So the book will give you a framework on your mindset for preparation and performance. And once again, just really excited to share it with all of you. It is now available. So once again, thank you for listening. Thanks for being an intentional performer supporter. And without further ado... I'm going to present to you myself and Chick Hernandez in conversation about my new book, Shift Your Mind. Thank you so much for listening. Chick, thank you so much for doing this for me. I am so used to interviewing other people for the podcast. And so it's a little weird to release the controls of the questions and, and sit back and, and answer uh, some of the aspects of of Shift Your Mind. And I know you've looked over the book and you were telling me before we hit the record button that you've been practicing some of the work. Uh, I know you're a big golfer, um, but you're also somebody who's been performing for, quite a while now, not too long. You're not that old, um, but but for long, <laughs> for long enough. So this is going to be fun for me. We're sort of role reversing for this episode. And um, I'm going to try to share everything that I've learned and that I've poured into the book. So I'm going to let you sort of take it away, but I just want you to know I'm really grateful for you. Growing up in the DC area, Chick is a legend. And I I really mean that he is somebody who's been involved in the sports world uh, and on TV and on radio. And so it's been cool getting to know you over the years and uh, just grateful to get to know you and uh, you do amazing work. So this should be a lot of fun for me. And uh, thanks so much for giving us the time today and, and, and asking me questions. So, so let's, let's fire it up and let's roll.
0: Yeah. Uh, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? No. Um, Barbara Walters, Walters, sorry. Um, yeah, no, it's my pleasure. My honor. Uh, we have worked together a little bit. Uh, I am a golf addict, so there are some some mental games that I play with myself and I was trying to, you know, find a way to, to, to alleviate that. Um, and it has helped. So then all of a sudden here you go writing a book. So seriously shift your mind. Here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, right there, shift your mind. It's backwards. At least on my computer. Um, undertaking writing a book first off what in the hell were you thinking
1: yeah and and before i answer that i'm going to give some clarification i got a phone call one day from this guy named chick hernandez and as i said growing up in dc you get a phone call from chick hernandez you're like oh this there's only one chick hernandez it's not like joe smith or called me it was chick hernandez (laughs) so it it was fun and of course the voice on the other end of the phone was, was beautiful um but the book I don't know, I I thought of this framework probably six or seven years ago and I just couldn't get it out of my head. So I work with all kinds of athletes on the mental side of performance and we started to list their mindset for preparation, their mindset for performance. And it became abundantly clear that this framework was something that all athletes benefited from, whether they were golfers, basketball players, soccer players, football, you name it. And basically what I would do with my clients is have them write a list of their preparation mind and then their performance mind and how they were different. And it just started to become so apparently clear that this was something that people were not thinking of, that they were either thinking, hey, I need to be humble or I need to be selfless or I need to be fearless. And they really weren't taking into account when. And so as I started to work with my clients, I started to notice this when I would listen to Kobe Bryant or Beyonce or Steve Jobs or whoever it was that was a performer in some way. And I started to notice this pattern actually existed far beyond my clients. So I think once I realized that, I said, all right, let's start putting pen to paper and let's start outlining what a book would look like. And it took me about four years formally working on the book and had a coach helped me along the way, a publisher that also helped me. So I got all kinds of help on my journey, but it's been an amazing process. And today the book is live, which is kind of surreal when you start something and then it, it's just, it's here. It's like your wedding day or a, a, the birth of a baby. Uh, I don't think I should compare the book to either of those, but <laughs> the the work that went into it, it, it was, it was a serious uh, task. It was hard. It was up and down um, kind of like golf, which I'm sure we'll talk about.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, the birth of a baby is much messier than writing a book just so you know uh, this, this,
1: I've seen enough. I've seen two births and I will tell you yeah. the birth of a baby like when my kids were born I really think it's one of the most miraculous things that I've ever seen and witnessing that it'll it'll make you think about you know, our time here on earth and and trying to do Mm -hmm. something with it because it is this unbelievable experience. And it's, it's different than birthing a baby too, because the book is done. It's finished. It's over. Uh, No going back now. I'm sure I'll look back five years from now and there'll be regret and thoughts of, Hey, what were you thinking? And, you know, if I don't have those thoughts and that probably means I didn't grow and change and develop. Um, but Mm with a, with a baby, and I know you've got some kids and they're now at high school and college age, um, you hope they continue to develop, evolve, and a book is kind of finite, so it it is different. And obviously, a book is a thing, and a person is has all kinds of complexities and, and beauties to it. So sure. it's different. But the 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 leading up is similar. You spend all this time leading up, and then it's like, whoa, it's here. Okay, now what? <laughs> it's right. kind of weird. You
0: no, know, thirty years ago, um, and I'll deal with this from the ath- athlete's standpoint. Um, athletes just kind of worked on their own. Um, very few were seeking, uh, guidance, were seeking a a way to tap into, uh, a different part of their brain. You know, 20 years ago, that started to change, certainly in golf. Um, then, you know, 10 years ago, you're talking athletes, performers, all of them were hearing of other people gaining advantage, uh, by working with someone and, and tapping into a different part of their brain to release the performance. Um, So what did you find in in dealing with folks? uh, How open were they to, yes, I want to get to, you know, this other portion that I'm not using.
1: Yeah. And I think your timetable is probably pretty accurate. I definitely think it was around in the nineties and the eighties, people were doing this work, but it was not accepted in the way it is today. And, for me, I, I started, I went to grad school in 2009 and ended in 2011. And my mentor is a woman named Julie Ellion and Julie got started, I think late nineties, early 2000. So, um, she's worked with a lot of the top golfers in the world golfers that I'm sure you've interviewed. Phil Mickelson was public with his work with her mm-hmm. and uh, he was pretty damn good and, and still can do a thing or two with the golf club. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I know he's a lefty, like, like someone else I know, chicks. Mm-hmm. Lefty. Um, but I, uh, for me, I entered in over the last decade, really. And, you know, there's still some people that don't want to work with people like me, for sure. There's still a little bit of a stigma. I don't need help. You know, I I, I don't need to work with you. Are you a shrink? Are you this or that? But I find that a lot of the elite performers, all they want to do is get better. Like they are just obsessed with the little percentage points that they can do to get better. And we see this in the NBA now where guys um, are sleeping guys are stretching, guys are making sure that they're taking care of their body nutrition-wise in a way that maybe they weren't 20 or 30 years ago. You look at a Michael Jordan and his approach compared to a LeBron James, and the way that they approach it is different as far as the knowledge that they have around sports science. And I think sports psychology is in some ways no different. It doesn't mean I still, when I work with a team, don't have a few athletes that say you know what i'm good like don't mess with me leave me alone and i do and i just try to build a relationship with them and maybe it's over lunch maybe it's by their locker um but then i find a lot of people are just like hey brian i know a lot of the game is mental let's go to work on it and they're usually pretty open um and i think it continues to change and develop and evolve and i think it'll continue to open up as even the stigma of psychology in general continues to get lowered and lowered
0: right um when you so you obviously had a a uh, outline um, I'll use my terms a rundown of what you wanted to get to in the book. Um, so when did when did you understand uh, preparation versus performance? When did that light bulb go off for you?
1: Yeah, the first time was I actually heard Tom Coughlin say it when he was the head football coach of the New York Giants and. At the Super Bowl, and they upset the New England Patriots, he said, we need to be humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And when he said that, Chick, I just thought it was brilliant. And Coughlin is a man of not many words. He's kind of an old school guy. Mm -hmm. But I then read his book, which was called Earn the Right to Win, which is actually over my shoulder. And I was amazed by it. Um, I was amazed at his ability to connect with the Michael Strahan and to adjust and to evolve, even though he had a militaristic old school background, but that humble enough to prepare and confident enough enough to perform thing really stuck with me. So that's when I then started to introduce that concept, probably to you. I would imagine we, we talked about humble preparation, confident performance, Mm -hmm. and I'd have these conversations with my clients and that's where they started to say, it's not just humble and confident. I actually think I need a little bit of arrogance. Um, I think this like unbridled, unshakable belief in myself. Or we would talk about work in preparation and play in performance or analyzing in preparation and instinct in performance. And so the list got to be about 30 to 40 strong. And when you start to notice that framework and you realize that this isn't really talked about other than what Coughlin had mentioned, for me, that was something that I wanted to share with the world. And I do a lot of one-on-one coaching. I do speaking but i felt like a book was the best medium for me to make sure that i my argument was concise and clear i think someone said i have over 270 endnotes in the book like it was important mm-hmm. that i really backed it up and got clear on which shifts we wanted to focus on that were backed up by evidence backed up by anecdotes and story um and that were also not redundant so we spent a lot of time drilling down on the shifts and making sure that we had the right ones in the book
0: right and uh the thing One of the lines that stuck out for me was, be intentional about the shifts. Um, What does that mean for you?
1: So this podcast is called Intentional Performers. And the reason it's called Intentional Performers is because I was about 25, 30 episodes in, and it was called Beyond the Surface. And originally, we were going to go beyond the playing surface and really find out who people were in their journey. But as I was interviewing all these people in business, sport, the nonprofit world, uh, media, uh, there were all kinds of different performers, musicians, actors, they all were intentional with how they were setting their mind. They were thoughtful. Um, whether it was before the competition and how they were priming their mind or how they wanted to show up once they were in the arena or how they showed up when nobody was watching, I noticed these patterns that people were very intentional. So when you combine that knowledge that I was picking up from the podcast with the book that I was writing along the same time, so the podcast has been around for four and a half, almost five years, the book I started four years ago, intention became a, a central theme as well. And for me, this book is all about when. And when do I need to be humble? And when do I need to be arrogant? When do I need to focus on work? When do I need to focus on play? When do I need to be perfectionistic? When do I need to be adaptable? And we have to be aware of when we need these mindsets, so to speak. And the only way we can do that is by being intentional with where we're putting our attention. So that's why I think, being intentional about what your mind needs to be when you're preparing and what your mind needs to be when performing is so important. And rather than just assuming that you need to be one way. And even when you read the book, you may read the book and say, for my craft, I actually don't need to be that way totally cool. My jo- my job is not to have this book be a panacea or a one size fits all. It's just to get people to think a little bit about how they are intentionally setting their mind in preparation, intentionally setting their mind in performance. And if I have success with this book, I will get emails and texts and tweets from people saying, "Hey Ryan, I actually came up with this idea for preparation and this idea for performance." That would mean that the book was actually doing its job and successful.
0: On a on a, a a micro level, I I ironically played in a tournament uh, this very day, and after reading the book, and I'm not exactly a scholar, let's put it out there, folks. Um, you know, I'm, my brain was like, um, but I'm sitting there reading uh, what you wrote, and I literally in my practice in my preparation for the senior Maryland Senior Open, I practiced some things, some keys that I had uh, on on the range and in the practice area. And oftentimes, I play when I compete on an amateur level. Um, This time, I literally practiced and said, all right, here's what this is. Um, I practiced smart. And then today, uh, you know, going out on the first tee, I was like, all right, let it go. Let it rip. Okay, just you you did what you're supposed to do. Trust it. Just let it go. And a lot of thoughts that I always have when the first tee, especially, were gone. I'm like, that's you know, here's my plan. Boom and go. And I was, it was a different ball that I hit. And the guys that I play with, some guys who played with me before, are like, huh, that's uh, that's different. And like, yeah. Uh, and I performed today. And even when I had a really really bad hole off of a really good shot, I was like, okay, and I, I can't it is what it is. I don't, I let it go, which a lot of times in the past, I would not let it go. It would seethe right into into the center of my back. And I would be whatever. Um, so I, I tried to, to use it. Um, the word arrogance is an interesting one. Um, obviously the top level performers, uh, athletes have to have some of it. You rarely find that, that, that performer who doesn't have, a bit of it. Some have a lot more than others. Um, how important is it to the process?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things you were talking about is experimenting and preparation and then trusting process and performance. And my dad is a lefty as well. And he's a very good golfer and he's always tinkering, always experimenting. You know, he's one of those guys that buys a bunch of putters and always trying to yeah. find the right thing. But when he goes out there, he trusts his process and he trusts what he has. And I think it really helps him as a golfer. And I think golf is a sport that you constantly need to be tinkering with. But you watch the pros when they get out there. That's when they trust their process. So uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's good to just put a pin in what you were talking about. I think it's really, really important. And then the other thing you talked about is practice. And uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is a practice involves the preparation mind and the performance mind. So, a great practice will simulate what it's like to perform and give you space to tinker, experiment, analyze, get yourself uncomfortable. Golf's a tricky sport because the practice range is set up easier than the actual courses. And sure. so, when I work with golfers, I often have them hit with their eyes closed or hit out of a divot to try to make it a little harder so that they right. actually can tap into their performance mind. As it relates to arrogance, look, I spent a lot of time thinking about the right word. And, you know, we, we cocky, narcissistic, confident, confident would have been the safe one, right? Confident. We're taught that confidence is good. People would not have said, Oh, Brian, like I've got an issue with confidence. But as we kept breaking it down and we kept studying it and teasing it out, it was arrogance. And for me, arrogance is this unshakable belief in yourself that you're important, that you matter, and that you're the right person for the job. I argue that confidence can be used all the time. So in order to actually be humble, you have to be confident. And, and, and so like I think Coughlin was half, half there. I think if I had him in front of me, we'd have a conversation around confidence and arrogance because I think truly confident people are humble and they're willing to open themselves up and say, hey, what do I need to work on? What do I need to get better? But the arrogance piece to me, if you study elite performance, it is this unshakable belief. And it doesn't matter if you get an eight on your first hole, you still believe it's exaggerated sense of one's abilities or, or their capacity to come back. And you look at Tiger or Rory or Jordan Spieth or whoever, Brooks Kupka or Dustin Johnson or whoever the golfer is you want to name, they show it in different ways. Um, Some of them are more open about it. And some of them, it's more internal. Muhammad Ali, of course, was external. Floyd Mayweather, external. But I look at a Steph Curry, who's more internal. Roger Federer, more internal. Serena is more external. Katie Ledecky, more internal. But if you study all those people and I've spent time cause Katie Ledecky is a local. Um, yeah. and so I have spent time with her coach. Like she has this amazing belief in herself. I've spent time with the San Antonio Spurs, Tim Duncan, who seems very humble. Like when he steps on the floor, he believes he's a bad dude, right? Steph Curry, yeah, when he gets sniper. across, right? Like when yeah. Steph Curry gets across half, half court, The fact that he believes he's in three-point range, for most of society, they would say it's insanity. And so in order to do big things, elite things, great things, you have to have a little crazy. You have to have this exaggerated sense of belief in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. I had Brian Mitchell on the podcast, and I know he's someone you've spent a lot of time with.
0: Did you get a word in Edgewise?
1: No, he did a great job. He talked all the time. It was awesome. Okay. And, and but B Mitch talked about Joe Gibbs talking about having this inner arrogance and the importance mm-hmm. of it. And B Mitch is somebody who was a quarterback in college. You know, right. I think he was drafted in whatever crazy late round and Absolutely. he being all-time kick returner, punt returner and has has this arrogance when he's on the field, but he also earned it. And so all the people I mentioned, they earn their arrogance through humble preparation. So because they put in the work, because they are outworking people and they're watching film and they're taking feedback and they're learning and they're growing, then once they are in their arena competing, they've earned the right to believe in themselves in an exaggerated way. So we went with arrogance and I feel really good about it. I, I know there's going to be people that hear that word and it makes them tense up. I know people think of the president of the United States right now as certainly being arrogant. And look, Like I think his issue is not the arrogance, I really think it's a lack of humble preparation. And I think Obama had some arrogance, W had some arrogance, you don't get to be president of the United States if you don't have this exaggerated sense or belief in yourself. But the problem is if we use arrogance all the time, that's when we run into trouble. That's when we're a jackass. That's when we're incredibly difficult to work with. What I'm suggesting is simply when you're in the arena and you're competing and you're performing, having this unshakable belief in yourself is essential. And if you don't have it, you will get humbled by your sport, by your opponent, or by any other environment that's thrown your way.
0: Right. Is there a a battle? Not a Battle's not the right word, but arrogance versus confidence is there a a fine line there or do they work hand in hand
1: for me confidence is a feeling um we feel confident whereas arrogance is a being like a knowing and when you listen to people like in the playoffs right now we got jimmy butler like jimmy butler (laughs) knows that the heat can beat the Lakers. Nobody else might know that. But Jimmy right. thinks that. And by the way, so does Tyler Hero. And so does Bam Adebayo. And so does everybody on that heat roster. And that's why they're in the NBA finals. Nobody, when this thing started, felt that the heat were going to be in the NBA finals, except right. for the heat. So for me, that is that inner arrogance. That's that belief when, no, when, when the data is saying otherwise, when everything's suggesting that you can't do something, that you're going to do it. Whereas confidence is a feeling. You know, I see the ball go in or golfers will say, oh, I roll a few putts in and now I'm confident. Well, we don't need confidence to be based on output or outcome. We need confidence all the time. We need confidence in our humility. Hey, I'm confident. I feel confident that if I'm humble, then I'm going to get competent and know what I need to do. So those are subtle distinctions that I make. Look, at the end of the day, if somebody wants to focus on confident performance instead of arrogance... It's fine. These are distinctions. This is vocabulary. As Mm -hmm. long as you're saying that your confidence is unshakable, unwavering, and not going to be based on potential negative outcomes, I'm good with it. But I thought it was important to really make people think about these words that we think are good and bad to me are just good or bad, depending on when you use them. Selfish is another word. Um, Fearless and fear. Those words, we tend to think fear is bad and fearless is good. Selfish is bad. Selfless is good. And my argument throughout the book is it really depends on when you're using them.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Preparing yourself to practice or preparing yourself to perform. Um, Do you think that uh, us modern day performers, athletes get bogged down in preparing to practice versus the performance?
1: So I think athletes spend way more time in preparation mode than performance mode. And I think a lot of us do. Um, We spend a lot of time other than like radio hosts who I know you're friends with a lot of them who have to go for three or four hours, but most jobs you spend a lot of time preparing And, and athletes, I think I studied it in the NBA. NBA players spend 12 times more time preparing than they do performing. You think about golf even because golf is tricky because you might play a four and a half hour round. How much of the round are you actually executing? So like in golf, you can actually shift your mind in the middle of a round. If you want to, you can approach it that way. And so- for me, I think one of the big takeaways of the book is to practice your performance mind because at the elite level, you've been around college and pro athletes, Chick, you know, they spend so much time in preparation mode. They watch film. Let's use football as an example. NFL players, six days a week, yeah. they're preparing for one day. And it's not even one day, it's three hours. And the rest of the time, they're, they're focused preparing. And it's only 16 games a year, especially if you're in Washington. It's not more than that, but but maybe- Wow. In yeah, I- we're Washington wow. people. We can say that. You can talk wow. You can talk bad about your- Shots
0: fired. Shots fired.
1: Well, look, if I'm going to watch every single game of my life, I think I have the right. So I've earned you do. the right. You so, do. And I will, I continue to watch. But um, my point is really that I think most <laughs> of us undervalue practicing the performance mind. We undervalue the reps of practicing and simulating what it's like to be in that performance mind. And I make the argument that we need to be more intentional with practicing the performance mind instead of just practicing the preparation mind. Golfers are a great example. How many guys you see on the range constantly tinkering, constantly experimenting? Big time looking at the video, Hey, trying to perfect their swing, but they don't actually practice a full routine shot where they don't go onto the course and practice off of a slope or out of the bunker right. in the short game area. And so I think that's one of the things, if you study, you got a lot of guys on tour. I know Rory McIlroy built this, this crazy setup in Ireland so that he could practice hitting balls out of crazy bunkers and you know, practicing the performance mind. So I think it's a big deal.
0: Um, how much? Is a weird way to ask this, but being humble, humility, uh, is that necessary uh, for someone to succeed in whatever they're doing?
1: I think it's huge. I really do. It's it's having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. It's it's really lowering what you think of yourself. Um, and some people would say it's thinking of yourself less. But for me, the humble preparers are the ones saying, "Hey, give me feedback." what did you notice on film? Um, How can I get better? They're constantly focused on growing, developing, learning, and they don't stop that. It's this, it's this idea of sort of being conscientious and thoughtful and, thinking about how you need to perform. And there's research about humility predicting performance even better than conscientiousness and intelligence. So when we bring this humble mind, we grow, we learn, we develop. And really, if you think about humility in three components, it's one, having an accurate view of yourself. So being self-aware. Two, it's being open to being teachable. And three, it's an appreciation of what others bring to you, whether it's a coach, an opponent, a teammate, an appreciation of what they can teach you and what you can learn. And that really is where humility lives. And I think the preparation mind is foundational um, to this whole framework. If you don't do the preparation mind, you don't earn the right to step into your performance mind. Um, so, yeah, I would say humble is is really, really big.
0: Um. I just had a question in my head here. Uh, You just said something and it just left me. uh,
1: Well, while you think about that, I'll keep going. There's one other piece to humble that I want to point out. We talk about leadership and the importance of humility and leadership. And there's no question that once again, I, I I will be open about my thoughts on Trump are literally not political. It's just based on mindset and leadership. Mm -hmm. Like I, I really believe he, he struggles as a leader in part because he does not have the preparation mind. I actually think his performance mind is quite strong, but his preparation mind is really limiting. And in my opinion, it like that, that humble piece is missing. And there's been research that found if, if, leaders are just humble all the time. And we're, and on teams where members expected leaders to be more dominant and powerful, humble leaders were actually met with doubt and team members felt unsafe to speak up about and, and take risks. So the point here is if you use the preparation mind in performance and you use the performance mind in preparation, that's where I think you really run into run into trouble.
0: I wrote down, humility helps recognize opportunities to learn. Um what does that mean?
1: Yeah, it, the the feedback is the lifeline to growth, right? Like when we get feedback and we are humble and open, that's the way we develop curiosity is what allows us to develop and grow. I think Kobe Bryant was really a great example of this. I mean, he said his favorite book growing up was Curious George. And he talked about curiosity being like his superpower. And he would go and ask Michael Jackson and business leaders uh, about their profession and how they set their mind. He was constantly curious, trying to learn, grow, and develop. I think that's one of the reasons he was going to be successful and was already starting to be successful once he transitioned out of basketball. But make no mistake, when he got between the lines, Kobe was the Black Mamba. He literally, Chick, created the Black Mamba. He gave himself a nickname. You and I know yeah. you're not supposed to give yourself a nickname.
0: Like you're talking to a guy named Chick, by the way. I know. Okay, did you ahead. give
1: yourself Chick? Where did Chick come from?
0: No, no, Chick it was given to me. It was a it's a too long a story, but it made more sense to me than my given name Carlos because that doesn't sound, uh, Carlos Hernandez sounds like a catcher for the Dodgers. Chick Hernandez sounds like a sportscaster, so it made sense to me.
1: But someone gave it to you, and then and then yes. you then you roll with it. Kobe gave it to himself, right? Mm-hmm. Kobe gave it to himself and almost created this alter ego when he stepped on the floor that he knew he had to have this inner arrogance. He knew he had to be present. He knew he had to play basketball. We play basketball. We don't work basketball, but I would say if you go through Kobe and I've done this before, he embodies all the shifts that we talk about in the book. I mean, from a mindset standpoint of all the athletes I've studied in all my years, he's about as good as it gets. And that doesn't mean he's the greatest basketball player of all time, but I would argue that he fulfilled his potential um, based on his mind and based on his gifts physically Uh, as well as anybody. I mean, it's pretty remarkable what he did over his career. And uh, he really understood these shifts without necessarily labeling them. So,
0: Right. Um, Imposter syndrome, uh, where, you know, I I think, well, here's, here's the thing that uh, came back to me, just came back to me. Um, Self-awareness. How, how does one, Figured that out. I mean, I think, I think we'd all be stunned by how others view us. Like when I hear someone say something about me and I go, I don't, that's not me. And then, you know, you have to take that in. And if you hear it enough, you're like, Oh, okay. I mean, I, I literally, literally look, I, we're being honest here. I literally won a month ago and did a mea culpa because I was bitter at how I left a previous job and how I was retweeting bad things about uh, the shows that I hosted. And it wasn't until someone said, I understand your bitterness. I understand your anger at, at the, at the bosses, but the people that you worked with, you are hurting them. And i was like, well, I'm not hurting. And, and then it took the time to go, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm saying their show is crap. And that's actually hurting them. These are people that I, like, loved, worked with, they had nothing to do with my, my, not my contract, not being renewed. So self-awareness, boom, boom, hit me. And that's when I went on. I figured since I ranted and vented on social media, I might as well apologize on social media as well. along, along with having individual conversations with the folks that I hurt, which I did. Um, so self-awareness has to be a, a key component in this And getting better at whatever you're doing, because if you if you're not aware, where are you going?
1: So first of all, I think it's very hard for me to work with people that lack self awareness. I'm not the greatest at helping someone develop their self awareness. However, some of the things that I do are 360 assessments. So when I work with people, I will get feedback from their peers, from their bosses, from all kinds of different people, and we'll share that compared to how Mm -hmm. they view themselves. So that is useful. Um, I worked with a football player, college football, once football player, once he's now in the NFL and I sat with him and I said, all right, let's go through like your strengths and weaknesses. Went through his strengths. No problem. Went through his weaknesses. And he looked at me. He's like, I don't have any like Hmm. dead serious. I was like, you don't have any. That's interesting. Um, are you going to win the Heisman this year? Like, uh, I'm, I'm just curious. And right. he's like, well, I just don't know what they are. And so I called in his his positional coach. I said, do you mind if we go get your positional coach and get his feedback? And he came in and he gave like five examples of things that the player could work on. And that player at the time was not aware. But right. the coach was able to help facilitate that. And it's interesting because I heard him interviewed recently and the player was talking about being humble and getting feedback. And... I think, so you talked about getting feedback from somebody that it sounds like you cared about that you Mm. respected and they were saying, hey man, you're hurting us. And so I think one of the other great ways to be self-aware is to surround yourself with truth tellers, surround yourself with people who are unafraid to say the truth because they love you and to call you on on your bullshit or call you on things when you're not acting at your best. And I think any partnership, whether it's in business or relationships and marriage, there has to be open lines of communication. And if you truly love someone, you'll let them know when they're acting a fool because we all act a fool. Like, make no mistake, what you did, we're all capable of doing. It's so to me, if we're going to build self awareness, A, it's surrounding ourselves with people that are truth tellers. B, there are actually assessments that we can use to learn more about ourselves. And then the third thing I'll say is then once you are more self aware, you need to be aware of where that your feedback is coming from and you need to be able to validate it and, and qualify it because we live in a world now and you're mentioning social media, like there's people that might, yeah, like Twitter, look, I put out a book. If there are not critics of this book, chick, then I didn't do anything. If there aren't people that read this book and say, Brian, like, I thought it sucked or I completely disagree or you're way off base with arrogance If that doesn't happen, then I probably didn't reach the amount of people that I think we can reach. And so qualifying the feedback, there's a woman named Brene Brown who's written a bunch of best-selling books and she talks about vulnerability, but she also talks about, she'll take feedback from people that are in the arena. She'll take feedback from other writers, other people that have made themselves vulnerable and put their ideas out there. Those are the people Mm -hmm. she wants to hear from the people that are sitting behind a computer screen and typing a bunch of stuff and are not out there and they're hiding. I mean, you have to qualify where the feedback's coming from. So I think that's the final piece that I would say around self-awareness and, and how we need, how we should be thinking about it.
0: Right. Um, Weaknesses. I was sitting there reading this and we just talked about the fact that some folks aren't self-aware working on weakness. How do you, how do you do that? How do you work on your weaknesses?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a, I think something in the book where I call it weakness work and you literally list your weaknesses and then you think about actions that you can take to try to reverse those. And I think there's been a lot of books written about focus on your strengths and, you know, just focus on your strengths and that's it. And I think it's half baked because yes, we need to know Mm. what we do well and know our strengths. So I knew I wasn't going to be great working on wall street. It didn't suit my strengths. I think the world that I'm in now suits my gifts and my strengths. And whether those gifts are innate or gifts that were nurtured from my family, I I don't really know. But I'm aware of a lot of my strengths. It it takes some self-awareness. And I also think we should constantly be trying to work to change our weaknesses into strengths. And that takes work. And I do think that like work and preparation matters. You, you have to put in the work and if you want to be great at something, you have to acknowledge your weaknesses. And I think about that division one football player. Part of the reason I think he's been become even more successful in the NFL is because he worked on some of those weaknesses. He got the feedback Mm -hmm. and then he created an action plan to try to reverse some of those weaknesses. And we're never too old to not change some of our weaknesses. Um, Do we need to manage them instead of flip them? Maybe. Um, but it starts with absolutely awareness of of weaknesses and creating some intentional actions um, and behaviors that can try to reverse those. And then you need to decide if you want to focus on your weaknesses during performance because I think the greatest performers, they work on their weaknesses, work on their weaknesses and then maybe their weaknesses become a strength. So I'll give you a really good example for myself. This is the most talking I, I do on this podcast. <laughs> most of the time, I'm asking questions and I'm listening. When I right. was in grad school, I thought psychology was going to be about body language and just analyzing people and observing people. And I got there to grad school and they talked about listening and asking great questions. And I was like, oh shit, I don't Mm -hmm. know if I'm great at either of those. And so every class I would write, they'd say, what's one thing you want to work on and get better at? And every single class I would write, I want to get better at listening. And I remember I went you know, after two years in grad school, as I was sort of getting feedback on myself and I was then going to go out in the world and practice the work that I'm doing now, one of the pieces of feedback they gave me is that I was a really good listener. And I was like, Oh my God, I did it. Like I, I, I shifted this, I changed this. And today my clients, if I said to them, I used to be a really bad listener and I never really was very curious, they would be surprised to hear that. But I bet if you ask my friends from high school, they would say, yeah, Brian wasn't necessarily a great listener, or ask great questions, always convicted and passionate, like, and had high energy. But I think you can develop those skills. I really do. I think there's nothing getting in the way from you developing the inner skills. They're called soft skills in corporate America. I call them strong skills, things like emotional intelligence, communication, leadership, those skills really do unlock our potential. And they really do help us realize our maximum and so that to me is the world I live in, and I, I'm a big believer that we can develop them.
0: It's funny because in my everyday life, what I'm doing, I don't, I'm, I would consider myself not a great listener. But when I'm interviewing someone, uh, the the antenna go up a little bit, and because I feel like the the interview is not, it's not this, it's not the questions I have in my paper. It's listening to someone and. An athlete saying something and you then go wait a second and then you delve into that and that opens up the subject right that that person becomes whatever you want to call it warming up to somebody whatever uh i can uh, my example would be um tiger um you know i asked i don't ask when i first met tiger i didn't ask him golf questions i Heard him in previous interviews talking about how he's about to become a father, and then my my first question to him was, I knew he was ready for a golf question. I said, "All right, it's Sunday. You've got your black pants and your red shirt. You have your little baby baby pukes on your shirt before you go out to play. You have two red shirts, or do you have one red shirt that smells like baby puke?" And he's like, "I could see his eyes light up." He's like, oh, I, I only bring one red shirt. So I'm going to smell like some serious crap right now when I go out and play. That's, that's the deal. And he was engaged. And that's, you know, that listening is such a huge, huge thing. And to my detriment, as my wife would say, you don't listen to me. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't. I don't. Um, I was sitting there reading and I saw the first four letters anti. And it said anti goals. And I thought to myself, well, this is, what's an anti and anti-goal is actually a good thing in your mind.
1: It's so interesting. One of my best friends is flipping through the book and he calls me up and he's like, Brian, I got a breakthrough. He's actually a really good golfer too. Uh, much, much smoother swing than I have. And he goes, <laughs> Brian, like, I think I, I had a breakthrough. I, I uh, I read about anti-goals and I want to learn more about them. And uh, that's what's holding our company back and my business back is is really like, what is it that we shouldn't be doing? And mm-hmm. you know, so often we set goals on what we, what we, what we believe we want to do or where we want to go. But anti-goals, and and I talk about this exercise in the book, is like, hey, go make a list of five things you don't want to happen, and then what are five action items that can make sure that the above don't do not happen right so um not just what do you not want to happen but what are the actions that you can take to keep them from happening and for him i think that was a big deal and for his business and um you know often it's what what's getting in the way is a question that i ask clients all the time hey what's getting in the way for you and we right. have to be aware of that and we have to be aware of what things get in the way and then create an action plan to make sure that we're not acting in the way that is hindering us from getting to where we want to go. And so goal setting is useful too. I'm not anti-goal setting per se, but Mm -hmm. I am pro-anti-goals. I think it's a really good exercise to do.
0: You're big on exercises. Um, And one of them is to list values in yourself and and create a statement. And and it's difficult in today's world, really, for someone to self-evaluate themselves, take the time to do it. Um, It's smart to do um it's obviously helped millions of people when they take the time to look in, into themselves but uh to look at themselves um list of values which kind of opens up the mind when you uh, when you see what you actually bring to the party per se um and you recognize it in yourself um it's 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 kind of eye opening um and so just talk me through that portion of, of you know, listing the values you have yourself and creating a statement.
1: I was with a client this morning, CEO of a big company, and we actually didn't get to the exercise because there was other stuff going on, but we were about to unpack his values. And the reason why is because your values drive your behavior. Your values are really at the core of who you are. If you think about politics, politics is a good example. I think much of the division and divisiveness in our country is it's the order of the values. So if you listen to a lot of people on the right, they're talking about security, build mm-hmm. a wall, um, you know, law and order, you, you hear that. And and that's, they want security. And, and then you hear the left and it's like, Hey, healthcare for all and equality, right? That to me is more humanity, um, mm-hmm. or justice. And, It doesn't mean that the people on the right are not pro-humanity and justice. It doesn't mean the people on the left don't also want law and order and security. But the order of those values really do matter because it drives your behavior. And there are very few people that would say, I'm a person of low values. Like I'm a person that lacks values or I'm low character. And the reason that is, is because the values drive behavior. Like, so the order of the values matters, first of all. Then second of all, I do an exercise with clients where I say, who are you? You're not a basketball player. You're not a CEO. You're not a um, radio host. Like, and the example I give all the time is Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. Like, mm. same wow. exact position. Wow. Both good-looking, big, strong dudes. Um, played on the same exact team. Came in the league around the same time. Got accolades. Got money. Got fame. Rings. Super Bowl rings. Mm-hmm. Yet their paths went in completely different directions. And I would argue that's a lot about their values. Um, And Aaron Hernandez's documentary was fascinating because it gave you insight into how confused yeah. he was on his identity and his values. I think he really had such sure. clutter on his values. And then you have Gronk who retires from football at 30 to go be on a party boat. Um, <laughs> You know, his values are, are what they are. Right. And then he decides to come back. So. Like my values that I've keened in and honed in on are humanity, justice, connection, and lifelong learning. Like that is who I am and who I aspire to be. I start with those values. Then I focus on my mission. My mission is I believe in helping others see possibility and their potential so that they can enjoy success. And so my job is to help people get from where they are to where they want to go. And then my philosophy is really how I want to show up. So the way I show up is a commitment to courageous optimism and open-minded for truth. That's my how. And then my what, the vision that I want to have is I'll do what I love when I want with clients I love so that I can be there for those that I love, uh, which are really my family and friends. So I go through that exercise for myself. I have a lot of my clients go through it because too often we think that our identity is what we do. And I'm sure you've met people in your profession that are complete jackasses that have completely different values than the values that you have or the order of values. Are completely different. And so we make the mistake in thinking that what we do for a living is who we are. And that's not necessarily the case.
0: Right. Um, the, uh, section becoming an adaptable perfectionist. So how much in writing this book did you have to be an adaptable perfectionist?
1: It's still going on chick. Like I, uh, (laughs) I've got this, this event tonight where they're going to toast the book and we're going to celebrate as best we can. It's going to be Uh, hosted by six and I, which is an institution in Washington, DC and all day today, yesterday, we've been perfecting the, 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 what is it called? The, the rundown or the show lineup, like, you know, this world, right. The rundown, I think you said, yes,
0: yes. The rundown. Yes.
1: And we're perfecting Mm -hmm. it. And I'm talking to the people that are toasting and they're perfecting it. Um, But the reality is once eight o'clock hits tonight, we're just going to need to adapt and adjust and flow and let it roll and let it ride. And it's not going to be perfect. And I think about my wedding, which I talk about in the book, and everyone, like when they're planning their wedding, they imagine it going perfect and, you mm. know, everything's going to go exactly how we plan and we've got a timeline and everything's got to be perfect. And you know, if you've been married, that it doesn't go that way. And right. You have to be able to adapt and adjust. And certainly my wedding didn't go that way. And because we adapted, it was perfect. It was exactly what it was meant to be. And so I think the best performers in the world, they focus on perfectionism and preparation. You even have the book next to you. You've got your notes. You're prepared for this. You even sent me a text and said, hey, Brian, like, is there anything you want me to ask specifically? Like you spent time perfecting it So that when we're here now, like you said earlier, you can adapt, you can adjust, you hear something in a thread you wanna pull on, you can adapt Mm -hmm. to it. So once again, we earn adaptability by perfecting preparation. And even right now I'm recording the audio book and I am perfecting it left and right and it's driving me crazy. But I think it's really <laughs> important that the audiobook is as good as it possibly can be. And sure. I'm not you; I don't have your voice. This isn't the lane I play in. I'm not used to talking uh, for long periods of times and enunciating a certain way. So we've sure. redone it, and we redo it, and we keep perfecting it. And I'm driving people a little crazy. But it was the same process with the book. I probably drove my publisher nuts because I just kept perfecting and saying, uh, "Do we really have it here? Is this good enough?" but now it's fun. Like now I need to enjoy it. Now I need to adapt and and see where it goes. And um, so to me, this book is a framework that you can use in so many areas of your life, not just in sports. And I hope it resonates with people because it resonates with me. And it's really how I think about parenting. It's how I think about playing golf when I go out. It's how I think about this conversation or when I do speaking or when I'm with a client. And I think if we're one way all the time, we really limit our ability and our capacity to perform.
0: You just said that after the angst of of doing the audio book and and how many times you're trying to be you know get it right and be perfect on it, you finally kind of flipped over and said I'm now enjoying it. So working hard and finding the joy in the experience uh, in your run up for this book, how is that is that a difficult thing? And in, in, in your line of work, is that a difficult thing for folks to do to find
1: the joy in the experience? The first thing you said is why the hell did you write a book like well, yeah. why would you put yourself yeah. through this it was painful it was arduous it was a lot of work there's no question um it was there were moments where like i had a moment where i couldn't find a copy of the book and like i had to redo something and um yeah. you know just like ridiculous stuff stress inducing pressure filled my wife Thank God she's like very even and steady was remarkable along the, along the path. Uh, and then today I got so many messages from people saying, I hope you enjoy it. I just talked to a basketball coach today. He said, Brian, enjoy today. Enjoy it. Like yeah. it's, it's out. Like the book is gone. Like go enjoy it. And so to your question, I think coaches are a perfect example of this. They work tirelessly work, 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 work. And I think it was uh, Mike Malone, the Denver Nuggets head coach, who said, we put in all this work, but if we don't enjoy coaching, yeah. if we don't coach with some joy, what the hell's the point? Like, And so I wrote something and posted on social media today that this should be a celebration. This should be something that we're toasting, that we're cheering on. And if I don't have joy in the outcome, and once I get to the finish line, then what's the point, man? Like, It's important that we sit. And we enjoyed things. I've talked to people who have climbed Mount Everest and they spend so much time preparing to climb Everest. Then they get to the top. It's like, okay, now we're going to go back down. There's not like a cafe or a bar on top of Mount Everest. Like they it take be. it in. There should be. Yeah. They take it in. They're exhausted. They're sick. They're tired. But they need to at least take it in and have some joy before they start to the descent. And the other interesting thing that's happened is a lot of people have said to me, hey, Brian, when's your next book? I'm like, can you just let me enjoy this one? Can you right, just like- right in this one and i think it was urban meyer who said when he won a a championship with university of florida that he was standing on the podium and they were getting the trophy and he was thinking this is bullshit that i'm here right now i should be out recruiting this is unfair right like this is unfair that i can't be doing this and Mm he said to himself and he said to his wife and his family that he'll never do that again and he caught himself burned out tired unhealthy because he didn't have any joy and so he signed a contract with his daughters i think saying hey i'm going to make sure that i have some joy in this process so i think coaches and ceos and people that are in leadership position often are so busy on their work ethic that they don't develop their play ethic and honestly i think life is short and we need to play we need to joy we need to have joy and i think michael jordan was actually really good at this he always used to say you play basketball you don't work basketball. It's right, important that right. you play the game. And anyone that watched MJ or watched The Last Dance, you know he's a cold mother effer, right? Like he is a, yeah. he was a competitive dude. But play with joy. That was the tongue out. That was the right. smile, the wink, the, you know, whatever body mm-hmm. language he would use. And I think it's important that we have joy in our performance. Pete Carroll is a guy I love to study because he's got so much joy on the sideline, man. And so many football coaches are so stoic and like always in that space. And I admire the joyful ones. I admire the Sean McVays. I think that, that life is too short to not have joy. Um, we've got a manager locally in, in Davey Martinez, who I think, you know, Absolutely. manages with joy, man. And I think mm-hmm. it's important. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, That's a piece that I want to get across to people is work ethic is huge. You won't find elite performers who don't have a great work ethic, but we also need to develop our play ethic, especially when we're performing.
0: Sure. I mean, and again, on on my level playing golf, I, you know, the angst that I played with for, I literally got told by my best friends, we don't like playing with you. Even though I was the best player in the group, they didn't like playing with me because I was the one screaming at a bad shot. And like, what are you, why are you so irate with yourself? we're not going to play with you if you continue. And it hit me right in my heart. I'm like, these are the guys I grew up with since first grade. I've known them for, at that point, 30 plus years. I'm like, well, we're here in Arizona, we're playing golf. We don't wanna play with you if you're gonna be a jackass. And it hit me, I'm like, oh. And I worked on finding the joy. And to this day, when I play, it's the day I played, and I, although I took a quad on a whole, I, I choose to embrace the really good shots that i hit and the fact that it was a beautiful freaking fall day i wasn't working i was hanging out with people some guys i didn't know i just met for the first time i am like well, this is pretty freaking cool this is pretty cool we can do this i'm i feel myself fortunate uh to be in that situation and and play you know in, in a competitive environment because i can't play softball anymore and i can't play football anymore i was like this is golf have fun with it and and I try to import that to my children, which 22 you know, year old, 21 year old, 19 year old, they're not listening to that, by the way.
1: Chick the Gratitude, which is what you're talking about is a great antidote to stress. And anyone that's played golf before, it's a very hard sport to play when you're stressed. You're, you're physiologically it's hard to swing a club when your right. body is tense. Uh, so there is a mind body connection there for sure. And so playing with joy for me is, is absolutely linked to gratitude. And look, I'm not the greatest golfer in the world. I, uh for whatever reason my mechanics are not the greatest. I didn't play growing up. Um like I've had to work really hard to become okay at golf. Uh, mm-hmm. but my friends, when I'm at my best, my friends joke, cause I celebrate. So when I hit a good job, be like, Oh, and they'll be like, what? And I'm like, Oh, that was an awesome shot. Are you kidding? Like, <laughs> and when they hit a great shot, I celebrate. And honestly, I'm the guy who I celebrate everybody. I'm not like we're playing against right. each other. I think that's BS in golf. Like golf is meant to be shared with joy. And so, like when, I, and I have had moments for sure where I'm miserable and people call me on it. Trust me, when you write a book like this, your buddies sure. are going to call you out when you're not living it up. And I haven't mastered any of these shifts. Like I'm still a work in progress, just like everybody else but I do think golf is a sport where there's literally hazards on the golf course. There no other sport has sand and water and high grass and trees like to screw with you and mess with you. So Mm -hmm. you better have some gratitude and some joy when you go out there or else you're going to have a a hard time. And, and there's no one that really plays a perfect round. I remember when Rory McIlroy just destroyed congressional a couple of years ago for the U S open and he shot a record and just, tore the course up and he came mm-hmm. off the course and he was interviewed and they said, man, you were pretty on fire day. He's Like, yeah, you know, I played pretty well. I left some out there today. And everyone that's listening is like, are you kidding me? But the reality right. is like every golfer, every round, there's going to be one shot that you don't hit perfectly or one putt that you sure. miss. And that's just mm-hmm. the reality. It's 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 the sport, it's a humbling sport. But I also think that's life, right? We're living in COVID right now. We're living mm-hmm. in a wicked environment. This is not an environment that you're gonna win. There are hazards that you're gonna have to deal with, whether it's somebody getting sick that you know, whether it's losing a job, whether it's being unemployed, whether it's your kid not being able to go to college. Like there is so much wickedness that comes with COVID, the racial tension in our in our society, the politics. Yeah. Like this is a wicked environment. And so it's not about winning or losing, but it's about doing doing the best you can and shifting your mind and seeing what you can do. So I think it's acknowledging it, being self-aware of the wickedness and then doing the best you can with what you got and setting your mind in an intentional manner so that you can handle the challenges and the stressors that come into our life.
0: We have a few minutes left here. Uh, I don't want to talk X's and O's. I'll use my vernacular, but the shifts, explain the shifts to folks, if you can.
1: So there's nine that we I mean, focus. There's nine that we focus on in the book. It's not the nine mental shifts, but it's the nine that we decided were the most strong. So I think it's a big distinction because so often books are the seven, the this. There is no the, and and I just want to put that out there and make that very clear. And I wasn't even sure. I went back and forth with a publisher about putting a number on the book because mm-hmm. I just. That's not what the book is about. The book is really about this when and adding the and. So, humble in preparation and arrogant in performance, work in preparation and play in performance, perfectionistic in preparation and adaptable in performance, analysis in preparation and instinct in performance, experimenting in preparation, trusting process in performance, uncomfortable in preparation and comfort in performance, future focused in preparation and present in performance. Fear in Preparation, Fearless in Performance. And the last one, which is one of my favorites, is Selfish in Preparation and Selfless in Performance. There are plenty of others out there. Hopefully, as I said earlier, people will come up with their own. But those are the nine that we drilled down on and, and focused on for the book. And I'm really happy with the ones that we chose. I think that they are as universal as we can make them. And um, as I said earlier, there might be something in there for your craft that doesn't resonate. So go pick three. Pick three that that really do land with you and, and see if you can direct your attention to those Three and bring them to your craft in some capacity.
0: And Here's the question that all authors get. So you set out to write a book. It takes however long it takes. What is the, when you went back and in, in self-evalued, evaluated, is the one thing that surprised you? You went, no idea this was going to go this way that this was, or, or that, that hit you this way. What is is that thing that you went and that you, you hope that people understand?
1: I think for me, it's more about the process of writing it than what's actually in the book. Um, I started with a writing coach and he, this guy's a rock star, like an awesome writing coach. And the reason I hired a writing coach was because I figured I'm not a full-time writer. Like I have a, a job and I've written and I've done like blog posts, but I don't know how to write a book. I need help. I was humble. Like I, like I was aware and I was humble and said, Hey, let's go get help. So started with this guy and we just didn't flow. And, you know, I think he was used to doing ghostwriting and I was not going to have anyone write this book. It was going to be my, Mm -hmm. my voice and my words. And um, I think he was used to controlling the title and the frame, like the the outline. And this guy is an awesome person and super smart and super talented. And he looked at me one day and he said, Brian, do you think you want to work with someone else? And I was so relieved. And <laughs> I was just like, Yes. Uh, you know, it was kind of like when you break up with someone and sure. like, you know what? Like we were forcing it. it. It was, it was not working. And so I went to this other coach. Her name's Larry Bishop. God sent. <laughs> she understood me. She nurtured me. she helped me organize my thoughts. She had a big picture of what the book needed to be and where the holes were in the book. Hey, you need to add some more evidence here. Hey, you need a personal story or hey, this is how we're going to set up each chapter. Um, and then she collaborated with me. And Larry, I mean like I think I could have read a pretty good book if I had gone at it alone, but I hope this book's great. I feel really good about it. And the only way I could have written a great book is is with her help. And so I think that was something I wasn't aware of is how much of an impact a coach could have on me. And for someone that coaches for a living, it was a a good reminder of the value of getting help, the value of not being too proud, the value of also speaking up when you think something isn't working. And, um, and then I think the other piece is how much I used the shifts in the book as I was writing. So how much I needed to tap into the preparation mind and then shift into the performance mind. There's an old adage called write drunk and edit sober. And I think about that for the book, it's like when I'm in performance mind, I just need to be drunk, right? Like not worried about what anyone thinks or they care, like just do it. And then when I'm editing and, and sort of redlining it, that's where I need to be sober. That's where I need to be hypercritical. And so I just saw the book emerge for me in my process. And uh, I didn't think it would take as long as it took, but I was of the opinion, like, it's going to take what it takes. It's going to take as long as it needs to take. But I think those were the two biggies, which is I didn't think that the preparation and performance line were going to show up as much as they did in my writing, like the actual process. And then Mm -hmm. how valuable having a coach alongside would be for my process. And I think whatever book, if I write a book next, like having Larry or someone as talented as Larry alongside, um, will make the process that much more enjoyable uh, as far as the writing goes. All
0: right. I lied. This is the last question here. Um, so I have been in TV for 35 years and I've seen myself thousands of times uh, live on the monitor. I've seen tapes of my shows. I've had people now on the phone show me something that I did. Um, And recently I did a voiceover for DC lottery and uh, the radio stations are playing it ad nauseum. It's, it's, I'm sick of my own voice, but I'm in the car and the ad pops up and I just go, that's me. That's pretty cool. So when you see this right here, when you see this book on a bookshelf, when you see it online, four and a half years
1: of of doing this. How does that hit you? It's exciting. It is gratifying. I believe in integrity. And when you say you're going to do something, you follow through and you do it. That's something that's a big part of my, my journey. Um, But I posted something today that, for me, the book is not all about me. It's about all the people that have poured into me, people like you, it's, it's people that I've met along my journey. I'm really fortunate. I was brought up in an amazingly loving home with parents that really instilled uh, a thought in me that I could do whatever the heck I wanted in this world and to not be afraid of it. Um, I had two brothers that were not my best friends when I was growing up, but are pretty incredible today. Um, I've had friends. I've got a community here in Washington, DC, which is where I'm from that I'm really proud to be a part of. I've got clients that are just brilliant. Um, I've got coaches, publisher. I mean, I just think about the amalgamation of people that have poured into me throughout my life. And so to me, this book is not about the last four years. It's really about all these people that have come into my life, even people that I don't know, the Kobe's, the Beyonce's of the world. And it's about them and their greatness and that's why I'm really excited. This isn't an autobiography, but mm-hmm. you know, I was the one that wrote it. And I think we're all a combination of all the people that come in contact with us in this life. No one is pure genius. Like Einstein ran into people that mentored him, nurtured him, natured, it, you know, took his nature and developed him in some way. And so I think at the in, in four years, five years from now, I think, first of all, look and read some of the stuff and completely disagree with it. I think if if I don't, I'm sure you listened to broadcast five years ago and you're like, gosh, that was awful. Yeah, absolutely. Because you learn, you grow, you develop, you progress. So I think hopefully there will be stuff in there that I'm just like, I think I was flat off wrong on that. Um, And and I think that that should be a truth and that's okay. And when I see it, I, I see everybody else. I see all the other people and the support and the amount of people that have reached out to congratulate me or say I bought the book or today I'm getting pictures of people receiving their book or one of my <laughs> friend sent a video of the UPS guy coming up and walking up with the book. I mean, some of these people are dear, dear close friends. Some of them are from college. Some of them are from my childhood. Some of them I met a month ago. Some of them I've met on social media and I've never even spent time with them in person. Some of them are complete strangers. Like The world is a pretty beautiful place, man. And it's an amazing place. And there's so many incredible people. And in this time that is dark, for many, many yes. people. I think it's right. an important reminder that there's so much good. And um, that's the reminder for me. And I hope five years from now that my kids are old enough to read it. Um, they will be at that point like eight and a half and almost 10. Um, that would be super cool. And we could have a discussion and they'll probably tell me how stupid I was. And I'm ready for it and excited for that as well. But um, chick to me, um, it's an overwhelming experience and I didn't expect it to be. I'm around a lot of people that have written books. I, I I interact with a lot of authors and writers on my podcast. And so I'm around that world, but I've been a little bit blown away by how many people have looked me in the eye and said, Brian, man, like, this is a big accomplishment. Congrats. And I'm actually getting emotional as I say that out loud, because mm-hmm. I do know the work and I know the, the the journey that I've been on with it. And I know that this wasn't half hazard or half ass. This was everything I've got, And so whatever the next book might be like, I don't know where the hell it's going to come from because I tried to pour everything into this. There was nothing that I sort of held back. And uh, it's good to empty the tank. It feels good. And I think that's the way you should approach things. So um, yeah, that's how I think about it.
0: Well, you'll hear this tonight and you'll hear this around the next couple of weeks. Author, author, author. Well done. Congratulations.
1: Chick, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast and uh, and interviewing me. It's it's fun, and you know one of the things I've learned is that I learn when I talk. Uh, I'm, I think someone would classify me as an extrovert, like I I do. I learn when I can get my words out and and put them into a, a microphone. And um, the fact that you would do this for me, it's just means the world to me. And uh, I think one of the reasons I wanted you to do this was not just because of your background in in journalism and in in broadcasting, but also because I know how much you care about your golf game and how much you care about performing and competing and the pride you take in it. And so you were the perfect person to ask me some questions and look forward to seeing you on the golf course. And maybe you can teach me a thing or two about chipping and getting out of the bunker and hitting my damn driver.
0: I can do Uh, that. I'll uh, write a book. I'll write a book on that for you uh no i'd love to play with you i would love to play with you um uh and you'll see uh, a guy who um you go wow i didn't that's that's unconventional but you know it's all about you know the final product
1: it's like a book we'll set it up and we'll make it happen and once again thank you so much for the time and uh looking forward to seeing you in person sometime soon i
0: appreciate it man good luck tonight have fun enjoy the experience tonight
1: i will i will appreciate you